Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about history, ancient and modern. What is the purpose of people congregating that's a fairly densely packed settlement? You don't build your city if you don't have a source of potable water. We're going to give up the bulk of this episode to, to a single interviewee, actually, a guy called Rob Monaco, who is, in fact, uh, he's a social studies teacher in Connecticut, in uh, suburban New York. But the reason we've got him on here is because he's better known as the guy behind the podcast History of Our World. So he's going to come on and tell us all about where cities come from. And it's like where babies come from but with more, you know, metro maps and so on. But that's kind of a difficult subject to talk around. So we thought what we do at the beginning is to kind of talk about, you know, Stephanie, you're not from London. What are you doing here? I'm not from London. So I came here to study a master's degree at Queen Mary University of London because it was the place that gave me funding. And I've tried to move away unsuccessfully, and after about six months in the provinces, got sucked back in. So the city's kind of got its claws into me. You are from London? Um, yeah, pretty much. I'm from suburbia. So I'm, I'm, from, I'm from one of those places that hardly anyone there would consider it London, but anyone from outside the southeast of England obviously would. So we have the Tube and we have the Metropolitan Police and, you know, casual racism and so on. It's, that, it's, that, it's the kind of very un-London bit of London, but it is technically London. How long have you been in London proper? I can tell someone's going to write in about that. Oh, uh, 14 years. I kind of mo- I moved into the centre of town straight after university, and it was it was awesome because we got this sort of nice Victorian house in a rather unfashionable bit of town, and then the rent was like 300 quid a month, and we had great landlords, and it was you know it was basically like living living the dream, and you know it's exactly the same as it is. It's today, I'm sure. So how's the house hunting going? <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I want to tear all of my nails off and scream at the sky. Sorry, for listeners at home, you won't be able to know the kind of face I just did when John <laughs> said the words £300 a month for an ex-Victorian. I'm not saying um, I was deliberately trolling you there, but I obviously was. Yeah, I mean, I am going to beat you up once yeah. I leave this room. Yeah, the house hunting is going OK. I'm having to accept that because I live in Whitechapel right now. 
um, which is very central and lovely and I can walk to work, that is no longer going to be the case on my next move, which is a shame. Do you feel it's some kind of moral failing that you can't stay in Whitechapel? Like, do you feel like you've done something terribly wrong that you're being pushed out? I mean, doing a humanities degree and going into the arts rather than financial <laughs> services. <laughs> my my father would call it a moral failing. But you've you've got much more of a history in London to me. So I, I only moved to London a few years ago. So what's your kind of sense of how the housing market has changed? Um, for all the stuff I write about it, it's, I don't actually have first-hand experience of it because it gets worse. Not only did I move to London when rents were still... I mean, that felt crazy at the time. I was paying nearly 100 quid a week in rent, and that was before I had a job. And that seemed like an absolutely ludicrous amount of money to commit myself to, and it's like, what the hell am I doing? But, but you know, in retrospect, obviously, those were the golden times. But not only that, I've, I've been living in a flat I own for the last six and a half years. Mm, it's just the dark secret of City Metric, It's not a it? dark secret at all. It's like I've, I've written stuff about how like, I own a flat and it's brilliant, and but I still want the prices to fall. Um, for purely, well, not purely, but for largely selfish reasons, in that at some point we'd like to own a bigger home, and, and that's not happening. Um, so it's like, despite the fact that, you know, in, in theory and through no uh, virtue of my own, we're, I'm sat on this enormous pile of capital now. Um, I'd still rather have slightly less of that and more of a, a future. Okay, yeah, no, I'm just going to locate my tiny violin for yeah, you right no, now. It's, it is horrible. I mean, sometimes, like, the boiler goes or, like, you know, or some or some, some noisy renters make a noise and, like, you kind of just... <laughs> I mean, they're the scum of the earth, really, is oh, what I'm saying. I'm going to murder you. <laughs> Um, but no, so I'm so I am flat hunting at the moment, which is so I've done this in a couple of places. I lived on my own in Exeter for about six months, and to be fair, I'm not finding it substantially worse to do it in London than I did in the southwest. But I don't know if that's just because it's such a boring, miserable experience anyway that there's only so much worse it can get having to call estate agents every day and kind of. Okay, just, can I spell it out for us. What is horrible about it? Like, surely you're, you're looking for a new home. That's exciting, isn't it? That's like, this is, you're, you're finding your future. <laughs> well, I think the most miserable thing about flat hunting, which you won't know about because it will have receded into the mists of time for you, is the website rightmove.co.uk, which I have a deep burning hatred of because it's one of these house-finding websites where all of the information and pictures are there, but you don't have to put the date the flat is available on the website and you cannot filter by that so I kind of spend like half an hour every day just clicking on pictures of sad one beds in Walthamstow and weeping. So is the problem that they've been there for ages and are therefore horrible because if they're any good they would have gone or there's already a queue of people what's the? All of all of the above so often they've already gone um now in London it's got to the stage where if there's a nice flat rather than saying call the estate agent it will just say open viewing on you know September the 8th or whatever and they just open the flat up because there's so many people who want to look um, and it's like an auction basically it is basically a lot of them say you know offers in excess of 1200 a month so you go there's not even a set price for that flat you are going to have to bid to rent a flat which to me seems to be a relatively recent thing I don't remember when I moved to London it was quite so tight but that may have been what I was looking for then compared to what I'm looking for now. 
Okay, so so these websites are horrible. Why don't you just do it the old-fashioned way and go to a lovely estate agent and get like the personal touch? That'd I think... be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Again, you can't tell, but John is smiling <laughs> in the most self-satisfied and awful way. Well, because I don't know exactly where I'm looking, and also because London is so overpopulated with estate agents that even if I knew exactly where I was looking, there would be four or five within a square mile, and I would have to go into all of them and register my details five or six times. And also, I accidentally gave my details to Foxton's, and now uh, my phone rings all the time. And what, what about letting fees? We haven't covered them. They're, they're fun. No, we, ha- we yeah. haven't covered them. Paying, what paying is for this? A, paying for a, a paying for a, I mean you you're paying for quality there right like it's the fact there's such a high letting fee is how you know that you've got a really good estate agent Are there any of the miserable things you want to talk about um, <laughs> I'm no, on a secret mission to just reduce you to hysterics here, so. <laughs> It's working yeah. Um letting fees yeah they're they're high in the city Yeah I've seen everywhere from kind of 400 pounds all in which I thought was outrageous until I found places that were you know, £150 per person, plus inventory, plus referencing. Well, but, it, but it's based on kind of whether or not they need to attract landlords, because I think, mm. particularly when I lived in the southwest, there was still a relatively high letting fee for I was a PhD student living on my own. So it still felt relatively high, but I know the landlord shouldered a lot more of the costs. Whereas I think in London there's such competition just to get property on the estate agent's books. They kind of say to the landlord, hey, we'll make it the tenant's problem if you register with us it's supply and demand isn't it there's just a huge number of tenants looking for not a huge number of flats and that pushes up prices and puts all the power in the hands of the landlord and the agents what what could we do about this john i don't know if only there was someone with some kind of a slogan that you could print on a t-shirt you can buy build more bloody houses t-shirts by the way i do actually own one okay i was i was out in it the other day and a couple of people gave me the thumbs up it was nice it was like being a really rubbish superhero <laughs> really rubbish <laughs> also I was at, um, this is getting really weird now but I was at a party um, our colleague Julia's party in fact on Friday night and Owen Jones was there slightly the worse for wear and yelled alright man built any houses recently so yeah that's my <laughs> you're getting house heckled by Guardian journalists I am now. getting house heckled that's amazing that's yeah. fantastic so but um, no I have not in fact built any houses recently because I I have no practical skills I write bad columns on the internet is what I do um, okay, so I feel like we're drifting away from our original subject. We are drifting subject. away from our original, yeah, so... Living in London, moving to London now, if you're not massively rich, is horrible. Let's not... No, let's it, not is, it, is, it is it's a genuine nightmare. awful experience, and yet people continue to do that. What, what, why is the supply and demand thing not corrected itself and everyone just not thought, oh, sod this, I'm going to Manchester or whatever? Well, because loads of the jobs are here and loads of your friends are here. And you can go to other places easily from here. And because every other part of the economy is tilted in London's favour, the fact that you can get a gorgeous two-bedroom in Deansgate for about as much as I'm paying for a room, not to dwell on that. Um, Deansgate's like right in the middle of Manchester, right? It's fairly central and they're beautiful old converted warehouses right next to Media City, yeah. But, I mean, okay, the, the Britain is an extreme case here because we are so ludicrously over-centralised, as we've talked about quite a lot. This problem is not unique to Britain because if you look at the US, which is a much less over-centralised economy, 
you still have the same kind of thing in New York where people are paying through the nose for, you know, literally cupboards. Yeah, and you have it in San Francisco where the tech industries are centralised. Basically, if you have cities where an industry is so focused on it that almost anyone who wants to work in that industry is going to have in the back of their mind, oh, I should really be in that place. I think it actually goes a bit beyond that. I think the value being generated in the world economy is increasingly focused on a few places like, you know... the, the, the. there is kind of this worldwide phenomenon of like all the jobs just sort of pouring into the big cities and away from smaller towns. And with the financial crash and the lack of other assets to invest in, so much capital has just poured into the value of land and property in those places. Because if you own a square foot of London or San Francisco or whatever, that's probably going to hold you in good stead during a financial crisis. So just property values in every major world city has gone And it really indicates how what might have been kind of the dream of the digital age, which is that you can work from anywhere and everything's kind of networked, hasn't come to fruition when it comes to land prices at all, because you can work from anywhere, but people still want you in the office. Yeah, but I think it's a two-way thing. Like, it's you also still want to be near colleagues and friends and other companies you can work for. I don't think it's just that companies are... It's all about presenteeism. I think it is actually people do want to be near to other people in their industry. And I don't think you can work around that just with a, by saying, hey, do it on Skype. We, we've just did a very long way away from, like, this is meant to be a sort of modern history lesson, which we failed miserably to do, but that's fine, this is fine. But I think we're ending at a point where we can um, move on to the most important thing, which is, do you want to get a drink after work? Yeah, we can do that. I assume I'm buying. Oh, yeah. Anyway, that's quite enough of us. Now for the main attraction. This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A Express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. My name is Rob Monaco. Uh, I started my little history podcast project uh, back in it was 2012. The podcast history of our world, I really wanted to kind of create my own kind of a comprehensive world history. I heard, you know, some people doing little bits here and there that I liked, but it was not something that I could dive into. I wanted something that was more story, but could give me the details that I needed. And maybe there's, uh, you know, a few terrible jokes here and there. And 71 episodes later, just covered the downfall of the Roman kingdom. The Roman Rome. kingdom. The Roman kingdom, yeah. Not the empire, not even the republic. You've made not even the republic. The downfall of the Roman kingdom in, I believe, the 6th century BC. Yeah, yeah, 6th century. Yeah, so episode 72, which is going to come out soon, kind of starts off at the traditional founding date of the republic, 509 BC. It's not really a republic at this point, more of a transitional pseudo-dictatorship, but with voting. But it, but it's, it's good. There's a lot of really wonderful primary source information out there um, that it's hard to find for some of the, the earlier uh, stuff. I mean, before we get into the sort of the, the origin of the world cities, I've got to ask, like, are you slightly concerned about, you know, literally dying before you get to the 21st century? <laughs> I mean, hopefully, you know, maybe I can... Uh, you know, pass the torch on to someone at that point and maybe they can take over. You know, I, I said that I wasn't going to dwell too much on, on some of these topics. and I'd like to pick up the pace a bit. But then there's, there's 
such interesting little tidbits here and there, and one legend leads to this, and somebody's making up their own dialogue, and it's too funny, and I'm like, oh, I gotta include this, and, and well, I am concerned, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so for the purposes of our conversation, we're gonna we're, we're gonna stick with with ancient history because you know that's that that's the bit you've you've done. Nice. Let's let's go let's go right back to the beginning. Where do cities come from? Why do we have cities? Cities, in the ancient sense, I mean it's it's funny. A, a city in four thousand BC would be like a like a small village today, or or a you know, if you're doing it based purely on population, that you could have 2,000 people living in a place, and that's considered, you know, by the historians, a city. I think what, you, what you're looking for is what is the purpose of people congregating in something that's a fairly densely packed settlement, that are there walls, is there a a social hierarchy is, is there a building that is taller than the other buildings and what's the purpose of that building is it a temple or is it is it a, a palace is it, is it a warlord's residence um are there are there walls are there defensive structures do the animals live within the walls or do they live outside of it i mean a city could probably though be defined as Something that George Carlin once said, it's just a place to keep all your stuff. And then you get more stuff and you got to find more room to put all that stuff. So where did the earliest cities emerge? That's where there's, I guess, a bit of debate. There are some sites in sort of southeastern Ukraine near Crimea that oh, you know, people aren't sure if they are considered a city or not. If you want to find something that we can all say really was early cities, Chatalhuyuk in Turkey, probably the earliest city, but Jericho could also be considered one of the earliest. I mean, the walls there kind of date back to late 7th millennium, but the more people learn about uh, Chatalhuyuk back in the Neolithic era, this has all of the hallmarks of an actual city. I mean, religious centers, political hierarchies. The big thing, of course, that you have a population that the majority of them are not responsible for food production. So if you don't have to worry about growing your own food, you can do other things like uh, art and architecture and developing writing and, and math and all of these wonderful things that you can do if you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. It feels to me like there is an extent to which the city is, I mean, almost literally synonymous with civilization. I mean, the words have the same root, right? You can't have a civilization without an urban society because that is, civilization is people not working on farms the whole time, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, civilization comes from uh, civitas, or I'm sure that, I don't know about the Latin speakers, maybe it's, it's civitas. You know, that B and W, it always sounds so strange. But Civitas is definitely that, that whole basis of probably there's your the Western slant on things, that a civilization has to have a city. And so naturally, when we, when we go to places that are uh, far away from the beaten path, and well, this is not a civilization, of course, because where are your cities? 
but there, but there is a larger civilization for some of these people. Maybe the uh, the, the Kurgans or, or or any of those wandering kind of Central Asian peoples. Maybe they didn't have cities, but they, I mean they certainly had civilization. Um, but I, I mean, John, I guess what you know what, you, what you're saying is you are right though that you can't have advanced, developed. Um, you're never going to get past kind of that Neolithic agricultural basis unless you have a city and you can do remarkable things with it i mean you can build a civilization in the middle of a resource strapped region if you have a city i mean when you're talking about civilizations without cities something that came to mind was um i've recently been reading a book called 1493 by charles mann about the columbian exchange and that's got a load of stuff in there about how one of the problems uh, europeans had when they got to North America for the first time was because sort of organized farming and and the way of life looked so different in the North American setting that they just thought, oh, these guys are just savages and didn't realize it was actually quite a, a complex civilization. It was just one that looked nothing like what they were used to in Europe. And then all these guys died of, you know, smallpox. So, you know, like take the, the Iroquois, they, that's a pretty advanced culture. But if they had developed those densely packed cities that you would see in Europe and Asia um, and North Africa, would they have developed more of a disease resistance? Of course, you could look at the Aztecs and, I mean, I know it's, it's not really ancient history. Tenochtitlan is, is built sort of 1300s, 1400s, um, and their city was probably the finest in the world at that point, but it also didn't do anything to stop them from getting horribly, horribly sick. But uh, absolutely, the North American, as opposed to the South American cities, really, you're looking at Cahokia uh, in Illinois now, and that was definitely a city, even though it, it comes later than probably some of the cities we'll be talking about, but it's also completely abandoned, and nature kind of reclaims it, and of course the mystery is you know, why, but cities don't always mean that more will pop up and people will want to stay there and certainly that's not a resource strapped region either i feel like having said we we're going to stick to ancient history and then jump forward like you know, literally about four thousand years here so <laughs> let's, let's ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let's, let's jump back in time a little bit. Um, yeah. When I was asking where the first cities were, I was surprised that you went to Ukraine. I mean, that's not somewhere I was expecting. Because I was kind of expecting the traditional sort of litany of uh, maybe it was Sumer or Mesopotamia or maybe it was Egypt or maybe it was the Indus Valley. I mean, Crimea, Crimea really? It's funny. I think I recorded one episode and I forget what it was, but it was... I, re- I recorded the episode, and it was fairly early on, one of the Neolithic episodes, and I was like, and I'm, what I'm telling you right now is like, this is true. And it was like a year later, and somebody put out, oh, it was, the, it was with the Neanderthals, but the, the jury said, no, there was no uh, inbreeding between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. I was like, okay, that's it, folks. And then a year later, they were like, no, there's 100% true that there was inbreeding. I'm like, nuts, I gotta go back and re-record. I, it, it's remarkable that there's more stuff being found that's sort of challenging the, you know, this is what we know, that the first cities are in the Fertile Crescent. Well, it depends on your definition of a, of a city. I mean, if you're looking at a large settlement that has, you know, possibly 10,000 people, uh, I mean, that, that's pretty big, but there's maybe people are more pastoral. That's still a city. Um, I don't. I don't know. I think this evidence is, is still fairly new, but certainly, I would definitely say that that Chatelhuyuk is going to be your first city. That's like a clearly defined city. Jericho is up there. If you want to go to Sumer, the first city there. I mean, and it's still fairly. I mean, we're talking 5,000 BC at this point. That's Eridu in Sumer, and that's absolutely their first city in the region. I always kind of find it a bit mind-blowing to think that by the time Rome is emerging as a player, we've already sort of, half of recorded history has already happened. I mean, we have historical records that go back to like the, what, the late fourth millennium BC. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that's just crazy to me that like we've already had like 3,000 years of history by the time Rome becomes a thing. So it, it, It's insane. You know, Rome, I mean, they even knew that there was ancient history before them. Uh, the, I mean, when Rome was just a baby, the, the pyramids are ancient history by that point. And they, they know next to, even the Egyptians know, they kind of know who built them. They weren't really sure at that point what the purpose was. They just knew that they were there. It's remarkable. And then, of course, that's where you get other people that, well, well maybe there was stuff before all of this. And they just happen to not leave any evidence whatsoever, but eh. <laughs> So if, if there were already stuff going on before you get to Sumer or, or, or the oldest bits of Egypt, then why are those the two that you tend to kind of hear as like, this is where history starts? Is it continuity? Is it just that like we kind of have a relatively continuous line from those places? There's too much to memorize. And, and, I, and I really, and I th- that might be a little flippant, but you're, you're kind of, you're told the narrative, and this is the story, you were told it growing up, you learned it in school, and that was told with authority, and that's 
that. And then you're told, oh, well, there was actually something before that. Maybe you get used to it and you're like, okay, fine. I'll, I will accept that there was something before Sumer. But then somebody makes a remarkable discovery and now you're told that, oh, it actually goes back another thousand years. I, I think that in our kind of social consciousness, it's a lot to digest. And especially for those who maybe have terrible experiences with history class, they'd rather not go back in there. And, oh, really, there's a word that I can't pronounce. It's got how many umlauts over how many vowels and consonants. And No, I'm done. We're just going to say Sumer, period. Or Egypt, and people don't even realize that Egypt's not first. It's remarkable how much misinformation is out there, but it also, I think a lot of it is, is harmless. It's just it's a lot to take in. Can you only give us a bit of a guided tour of what, I mean, I'm, I'm asking a lot here, don't get me wrong, but can you give us a sense of what these very, very ancient cities would have looked like? Like, what features would they have had that would be recognizable to us today as, as urban? I mean, they didn't have, like, subway networks, right? <laughs> no, I mean, some of the later... Uh, cities would have sewers. I mean, Rome obviously is probably the more famous example because they took sewers very seriously and their sewers were huge. I mean, you could walk through them. But you would find, especially towards the Indus River Valley in uh, Pakistan and India, uh, grid systems, which is fantastic. Um, China was a huge fan of grid systems. Some Greek cities, Rome... It was it's a it's a type of grid system. It's not not the best, but they get better at it. So you would absolutely recognize that there are clearly defined roads for carts and horses, sidewalks. You would find in some of the more uh, clean uh, cities, bathrooms, toilets. Even you would find buildings for takeout, because absolutely uh, you are not doing your own cooking. A lot of these buildings are flammable, and no one is going to have, uh, unless you are well off, they're not really going to be keeping a fire going too much in these places. It's actually a lot easier to just go for takeout. You would find parks, especially in the warmer climes. People realize the value that preserving parks would bring. Um, the Persian emperors especially love their parks, which where we get our word for paradise from. It keeps you cool in the summer. It's natural air conditioning. It's a good thing. It's not the image of sort of like that slop-ridden medieval town that perhaps you would see in, in, the, in a Monty Python movie. That's really, I mean, I know for me at least, that was my image of most ancient cities, um, just gross and filled with all sorts of horrible things, although it probably didn't smell the greatest. <laughs> I mean, even the cleanest cities, I, I, yeah, horses have their own natural byproduct all the time. It can't smell that good. <laughs> what about lighting? I mean, did, it, did they use like candles or like oil lamps, or do we know anything about this, or is this just, this just there isn't any kind of danger in the records? I, I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of these ancient civilizations, Mesopotamia, Levant, I'll, I'll exclude China for a moment, though. But, I mean, they all tend to pop up nearer the equator. 
So you are getting a lot of natural light um, throughout the year. I know a lot of Greek and Roman villas would have um, exposed lighting, um, like rooftops in a sense. But a lot of the time, it could be very dark um, in some of these buildings without a, a, a lamp post system, which some places would use. At this point, you're really relying mostly on, you know, individuals um, to sort of keep things well lit. Um, I think it was, I want to say in the Sumerians, that you would have torch, torch lamps um, sort of to keep it going. But it depends on the region. I mean, you need wax for candles, and you're not really going to get that much. You could probably get it from plant sources, but, or maybe, I know the Egyptians used uh, hippo fat, but it's kind of hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm showing my ignorance here. I don't even know, like, what's the sort of geographic distribution of wax? Where can you, is, like, is wax something you only have in temperate zones or something? And that's true. I mean, I know, I mean, you can get it from plants and, and uh, you know, fat animals and stuff, but uh, bees, I, you'd have to go and, and search them out, I mean. I mean, it, it's it's kind of that's almost like its own little like little topic right there. I, I'd I'd love to actually find out more about that now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I look forward to the, the, the waxy special at some point. Then, like... <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that'll be nice. <laughs> How about water? I mean, like we did. This is one of our very first podcasts. Actually, we did something on on uh, the importance of water for cities and uh, basically about the fact that in, in uh, the Arabian Peninsula right now, they're building all these cities and deserts for the first time in history because we now have the technology to use oil to desalinate water in the desert. And there are questions over how sustainable that is. So I'm kind of wondering, like, in, in the, the ancient world, like, do we know where they got drinkable water from? Like, are they literally just sort of pulling it straight out the river or in wells? Or how, how, how does it work? You're actually kind of right on some of that stuff. It's... You don't build your city if you don't have a source of potable water. And the, I'm sure that there were many failed cities uh, and cultures at first who didn't realize that you need to keep your clean water maybe upstream from the nasty water. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you kind of separate the two. If you, if you look at the earliest civilizations, they're all built next to a river, some kind of, of river or stream or, or something where you have flowing water, not a, not a trickle, but, but something that has more of a, a push to it. Now, of course, that could just flood your city, which happens a lot, actually. But you need that because it keeps the water clean as well. You'll let gravity do a lot of the work for you. Irrigation, I feel like it... it it kind of comes up uh, around the same time throughout the world. Um, but of course, the Sumerians are very famous for it because the farther out you go, there's not a lot of uh, groundwater, at least not that they can get to. But we should just say, I think, in case any of the listeners aren't aware, that Sumer is what? Southern Iraq? It's southern Iraq, Kuwait. We are looking at sort of the region uh, of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So when we talk about, you know, Babylon, Assyria, these are all in the same region. It's, it's a region that um, is very old and people are always fighting over it. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, 
it's kind of it's kind of sad. But uh, and interestingly enough, of course, that uh, with Sumer, uh, you look at the maps nowadays, and of course, this confused people to no end when they first saw it. Is well, how do you build a giant city like this in the middle of the desert? And the truth is they didn't build it in in the middle of the desert. It's just that as the centuries pass, these two rivers keep on pushing silt further and further downstream. And basically the city didn't move. The the earth just built up. The the Um, desert moved, basically. Yeah, basically. The desert moved. But you do see pipes uh, as early as uh, the fourth millennium. And... This is something that, again, took me by surprise when, when I was doing my research. That I, I mean, I expected them to say, uh, you know, the, them, the experts, the, the Minoans of Crete, they had excellent pipe systems, waterways. The Babylonians had pipes. But really, the earliest so far that we can see of pipes and drainage ditches and toilets are in the uh, Orkney Islands, all the way north of in Scotland. That's about towards the end of like 3000, 3100, 3000 BC. It's, I'm probably mispronouncing it. It's something Scarabray. They're really more large settlements than cities. I mean, I guess if we want to do the ancient history definition, we can call it a city, but they had pipes and toilets. I mean, and apparently, I mean, running water to sort of carry all of the, uh, the effluent away. Which, I mean, I was reading this, and it, and it blew my mind that you have such a culture that's so infatuated with sanitation, and it's pretty far away from everything else. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's older than uh, Stonehenge. It's older than the pyramids. My understanding is, in sort of the earliest history we have, the city is generally the sort of political unit. Like, there isn't a nation-state or even an empire at that point. People belong to a city, and that's kind of where your civic identity comes from when does that start to change when does when when do i don't know um people in eridu start to become sumerian do they become sumerian or is that just or is this kind of something that we've imposed on them in history right. that took me a bit too because I, I was always told you're right it, it, it's sumeria but it's not it's 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 sumer is, is the region i mean sumerians like you said they might think of themselves as the sumerian race which nearly it's the black-headed people but right you would identify as a resident of that city it's like the um it's like the renaissance uh, italian cities um that they're city-states it's yes florence and uh genoa they would consider themselves italian people but now you're a florentine you're a genoan you know it's and and likewise with sumer you're from Eridu, you're from Ur, you're from Uruk. You have your own kings, you have your own traditions, even though you all worship the same similar gods, you eat the same food, the, the buildings look very, very similar. I really, it's with the introduction of the first people who decide it's it's not enough to just conquer and and take over and, and pillage and plunder and you stay and you say that city's mine that city's mine that city's mine and you have the first empires maybe i mean somebody might argue otherwise but maybe sargon of, of the akkadian empire which is uh, again in that region again i mean it's all in this region he could maybe be considered the first emperor and 
again, you would have to identify now as someone of the Akkadian Empire, even if you're not ethnically Akkadian. Of course, they boot him out, uh, or the Akkadians out, and then it's back to this. But the, the idea catches on that while you might hail from your own city, you pay taxes to the empire, and don't forget where your true loyalty lies. So maybe it's just it's it's just one guy saying I have a lot of regular stuff now I want city stuff and you just collect it. <laughs> I mean we've all had that impulse on occasion, you know. I'm just gonna go out and conquer some stuff today. They get an itch. I mean, yeah. you know. I mean, it's, it's nowadays. I mean, we could go on the computer, you play a few games. You know, that was great fun. I I enjoyed that one. Back then, just with real people. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we should probably be sort of wrapping up, so this is going to be my last question, I think. Um, but you're you're over there in, in Connecticut. You're kind of in a you're basically in the suburbs of New York, right? You're sort of out yeah, of the suburbs, and, yeah. And I and I grew up in New York, so I I'm, I'm used to the big cities. <laughs> yeah. But like, what do you think? This modern cities like New York could is there anything they could learn from these really ancient places? Is there anything like you'd like to see? I'm I'm struggling to phrase this question. Just kind of give, give bring it back to the present for us. Give us some give us some lesson from the from the past. I, I yeah I like I like where you're where you're asking me. Do we need do we need some big walls to kind of keep out the um the Acadians or something? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean yeah right. I mean we we do need big walls, John. I mean we need huge walls. Um, it's gonna build the biggest wall you've ever seen. Yeah. It's gonna be the best. Yeah. <laughs> I it, it is telling that I mean yeah we I forget it was one of my professors who was you know always saying that you can tell a lot about a city based on what the tallest building is you know it's first it's the palace and and then it's the the temple and then now it's you know the skyscrapers so business is the best uh, my I, I I would be happier if cities took the lessons of don't just sprawl for the sake of sprawling, which I, I feel like, and you probably know a lot more about this than I do, that doesn't probably seem to be the direction nowadays. It's probably more vertical um, than horizontal. It depends where you are, I think. I think like um, in, in Europe, that's never really been the direction of travel because, I mean, particularly in mainland Europe, because you kind of it's not that long before you hit a border a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I think in, in a lot of the United States and in, in China today and in parts of the Middle East, they are still kind of cities push out as much as they push up. So That's true. I mean, I, as somebody who's only really used to, uh, you know, New York, it's, yeah, there's, it's, it's an island. There's, there's nowhere else you can go. So, I mean, I, as, as, as I overwhelmed as I still get sometimes, um, I can't help but be, uh, amazed by by the how much Manhattan I mean people have just made the most out of their the space there um, and how they remembered well some people remembered at least that you got to make room for the earth um, I would love to see a city that is technologically advanced for its time much like these cities that we talked about you know the the Minoans and the Indus Valley Harappa and Mohenjo-daro these are super advanced for their time. I feel like our cities nowadays, because of their age, that they are not technologically advanced anymore. I know it's expensive, but it, it, somebody's got to make the call to 
start saying we could do so much more and let the natural world sort of take in um, for that. I've seen blueprints. I, I think there was an Italian architect who was showing um, something very, uh, very kind of like Lord of the Rings elven, you know, where you merge the trees and the vines together. It cuts down on like cooling costs and heating costs by some astronomical number. I, I would love to see more incorporation of the natural world, just like the Egyptians did, just like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Just more of sort of a blending. Less Roman, like, those are the slums. We'll just let them do their thing, and if they catch on fire, that's when we pay attention. More take care of the city and treat it sort of as like a living, breathing thing. But it almost has its own spirit to it. Which, I guess, if I could be really ADD for a second, having that spirit, you know? It's, it's like the, the city has its own persona, which, you know, you look at the Roman coins, they always have like a goddess of the city. don't want to go back to kind of our navel gazing of the first half so we put a shout out on twitter to ask you guys about moving to and leaving cities and why you do one or the other okay before i start reading out tweets i just want to say like it's far less successful when i do this than when you do this and i can't work out if this is because you're better at it than me or people like you more either both those things are plausible possibilities or whether it's just people really like explaining things to women on the internet it's probably a combination of all of them I don't know, maybe we should do a test where we both tweet the same thing and we'll see if we get different responses. Yeah, we'll do a chart. We love charts. Tune in next week for charts. Yeah. Anyway, so, look, I, I like this one. Laurie Goodman said, I left Washington, D.C. because the rats are the size of dogs and everyone in their shops in J. Crew." I sort of asked, is that, is that a real thing? And she said, well, the rats are large and people do love J. Crew, but I left because my visa expired, sorry. <laughs> the reason I read out the second tweet is because, and this kind of fits into the explaining things to women on the internet theme, someone called Michael Keane popped up to say, there'll be ratus Norvicus, a lot bigger than ratus ratus, would say everything bigger in US, but UK has both. So mm. a little lesson in, in urban wildlife for you there. Somebody called Chris Terry says he moved, I presume, to London because I wanted a career in politics and in the UK your options are severely limited if not in London, would leave for a house. I suggested he, that he moved to Manchester to work for Andy Burnham and he replied, um, no, so <laughs> suggests old Andy has a bit of work to do there. Good taste on Chris Terry's part. OK, this is a good one. A guy called Jack Thompson explaining why he decided to leave the countryside. It was because he got stuck in traffic behind Lady Starkey walking a dog by holding its lead out of the window of her murk and realised that if it happened one more time, he'd go mad. I asked if that was a real story as well, and he replied, yep, it wasn't even a big dog. Maybe it was a big rat. Maybe it was a big murk. Would you ever leave London? I mean, I might have to, because I can't get a bigger house. I mean, we'll move to suburbia. I'll probably have to leave proper London to move back to, like, Zone 5 or something at some point. I'm really excited for episode one of Suburb Metric. You've been listening to Skylines, the Cityometric Podcast. 
It was presented by John Elledge and Stephanie Boland and produced by Royfield Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by CORTR. You also heard We Are One by Vixento. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes or in the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find two more shows by Eric's and colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on, we love you for it. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.